0: Good morning again. This morning, we're going to talk about how we start over. And so it might help to ask ourselves has there ever been a time in our lives where we had to, or it felt like we had to start over? Maybe you were working on a project at home, or maybe you were working on a project for school and it was going really well, and then all of a sudden you realized that you had made a mistake way back at step two, and you're at step 20, and so you have to go all the way back and start the whole thing from the beginning. Maybe you've had this experience, you're, you have a lot on your mind and you're going somewhere, whether it's to work or church, and... You go, you get in the car, you start driving, and then after about five minutes you realize, wait a minute, the, I, I needed to go the other direction. <laughs> and so you have to go all the way back where you are and start your whole trip over. In a more serious way, maybe you're you're living your life and all of a sudden you realize, I just made a, a very bad mistake here. And you have to go back and fix it and start that portion of your life over. I was thinking about how this interacted with me when I was a child. When it's a child, it's, it seems like it's less so, but when I was a kid, video games were a lot harder than they are nowadays. And kids these days have them so easy. See, back in my day, back in my day, you only had one shot to beat the game. And if you messed up, you had to start all, all the way over from the beginning again. There weren't any of these saved things. You'd lose hours of progress and have to start over. Or perhaps when I was doing math homework. And I felt like I understood how to do this particular assignment. And so I'd go through and I'd do all the questions and i feel pretty good. But then the teacher would always say, be sure to check your answers in the back of the book. And so you turn to the back of the book and you look and realize they're all wrong. I must have been doing it wrong the whole time. And so you have to start the whole assignment over. But sometimes it's a bit more serious. Maybe we lose a a friendship or perhaps a romantic relationship. And so then you have to start over with new friends, new people and start from scratch. And when we're at this place where we start over, it can leave us feeling disappointed. We can feel angry and frustrated. We maybe experience feelings of worthlessness and think, what was the point of all that I just did if now I have to start over? And so the question is, how do we handle our disappointment when we have to start over? And if we find ourselves in that place, what are we to do? What do we need to know? What needs to be in our mind as we're starting over? and the next chapter in the book of Ezra answers this question. If you remember we're now looking at the book of books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. These are in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the story of God revealing himself to the people of Israel. He revealed himself to them by calling this people to him. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to a promised land. But when they were in that promised land, they didn't love God. They didn't cling close to him. They went after their own interests and desires. And because of their sin and rebellion against God, they were put into exile out of the land. They were in exile for 70 years. But now, in the part that we're looking at, God is bringing them back to the promised land. And these books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about three different groups of people coming back to the promised land. We're now in the very beginning of Ezra, so we're looking at the very first people to return sometime around the year 538 B.C., This group was led by two men. One was named Zerubbabel. He was the governor, but he was also the grandson of one of the old kings of the nation of Judah and a priest named Jeshua or Joshua. And with just under 50,000 people, they've come back to the promised land. And now that they're back, it's time for their nation to begin anew. It is time for them to start over. And so this morning, we're going to talk about three truths that we can know about God that will help us when we have to start over in our lives as well. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in chapter three, Ezra three. You can look at it in your Bible or you can look at the words on the screen behind me. And once you're there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today, Ezra chapter three. I'm going to be reading from the English standard version. Ezra three, starting in verse one. It says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, they were back in the promised land, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehoshadak with his fellow priest and Jerubabal, the son of Shealtel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon and the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea and then to Joppa according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, they made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise The work of the house of the Lord. Verse 9 is a list of those who were supervising, so I'm going to jump down to verse 10, which says When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word it's always relevant, powerful, and impactful. I pray, God, as we look at your word and your truth today, you will teach us about you and what we need to know about you if we're starting over in our life. I pray, God, you'd show us how you provide us safety, joy, and how you provide us hope. May we know who you are. May we know the good things you provide that only come to us because of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see you and see him clearly today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first truth we should know about God, if we're going to start over, is we should know that God is our source of safety. God is our source of safety. We see this coming through the first six verses. I'm not going to read them again, but let's talk about what these verses showed us. If you want to kind of look at your Bible you have in front of you, you can see these events happening. So the Israelites are back in the promised land. They've resettled into their towns and their cities. But now, after they've resettled, after a few months, they're all called, or at least all the men are called, to go to Jerusalem, the capital city. And by doing this, they're obeying a command of God. God had said in the Old Testament law that he gave to these people, he'd said three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God at the place that he will choose at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks and at the feast of booths or tabernacles, which if you remember reading, that's where they are right now so they're honoring God by being there. But think about their situation. They've just come back to this land. There's only 50,000 of them in total, a little less than that. There's other people who live in this area, but still all the men are to leave their new homes they, can, they just arrived at to go to Jerusalem for a few days. That left their homes, their properties, their families vulnerable. This is BC days. There's no locks there's no security system. There's no police that they can call, but still they go. They trust and obey God. As one pastor, James Hamilton said, it's better to obey God and worship him than to do what you think is safe. It's better to obey God and worship him than do what makes sense in the eyes of the world. And so that's what they do. They go back to Jerusalem and when they're there, they're going to reestablish the sacrificial system. This was how God's people interacted with him. By offering animal sacrifices on an altar, a raised platform, it symbolized how the animals paid for the sin that separated them from God. It was an important part of their religion, and now that they're back in the promised land, they can do it again. It set them apart from other nations. And so they build a simple altar, or perhaps they're repairing the one that was broken, the one Verse verse 3 says, they set the altar in its place, uh, implying that there was a place for it there that they rebuilt it on. It's even possible that there may have been a pagan altar that had been built on top of it that they had to tear down first and then build the one that honored the Lord. Again, by doing this, they're obeying what God said in the Old Testament law. Again, in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name to make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, you're to bring to this one place. And now they've rebuilt this altar. However, the passage does tell us that rebuilding an altar to honor God, that's not the only reason why they did this. If you look again at verse 3, verse 3 says they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Fear was on them in their hearts of the surrounding peoples, the local residents who were already in this land. They were terrified of the people around them. Now this land used to belong to the people of Israel But if you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about the way a lot of ancient empires worked. What they would do is they would come in, conquer a territory, they'd take all the old people out, spread them out around the empire, and put new people into the land, move them around. But now there's a new government in power, the Persians, and they're all about sending people back to their homelands. But there's still those other people there, these resettled foreigners who did not worship God. Or at least they didn't worship him according to his word. They maybe mixed his worship with some other beliefs and practices. And we're going to talk a bit more next week about the kind of trouble they're going to make for the people of Israel. But for the Israelites, they're like the church today, a believing community that's often in a very hostile environment. And they're afraid of these other peoples who probably number a lot more than they do. And so what do they do with their fear? Well, the answer may surprise us. They didn't build fortifications. They didn't form a militia. They didn't launch a surprise attack on the people around them. No, what they do is they get together. They trust God. They rebuild the altar so that they can worship him. Their fear could have overwhelmed them. They could have said, all these other people are here. We can rebuild the altar later once we're all safe. But instead, they resolutely persisted. And by doing this, they're actually showing true courage. One scholar named Mervyn Brenneman said, courage is not the lack of fear. It is the will to act in spite of fear. When you're courageous, it doesn't mean you aren't afraid. It just means you see that fear, but you still act anyway. And that's what the people did. They're afraid of those around them. But they still seek to worship God and still seek to honor him. They turned their fear of others into trust in God, and that is true courage. And friends, the same is true for us. You can show this type of courage as well. You can give your fears over to God. I don't know what your fears are. Maybe it's a fear of sickness or fear of unrest around us, fear of the future, what is to come. You can give that fear to God. He can handle it and you can praise him. That's what the Israelites did. They start praising God by practicing daily sacrifices. That's what they do in verses four and five. They begin to restart the daily offerings they had before, as well as it's the time of year for them to celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles, shelters, and the people give free will offerings. They did exactly as they were instructed in the Old Testament law. They did what was written they're back in the land and they are committed to obeying God. And it's appropriate they're doing it now because we're told this is the seventh month. It was the time for this one feast, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And so they rebuilt the altar just in time for them to celebrate this feast. And this one would have been very meaningful for the people. The reason God gave this feast, it was a reminder. Remember I said when God first brought this people to himself, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they traveled through the wilderness. And so they were supposed to celebrate this feast to remind themselves when they didn't have a home, when they were in the wilderness, God provided for them. He took care of them and he guided them through the wilderness. By celebrating this feast, they're remembering that. And that would have been very meaningful to these people because they just made a similar journey. They traveled through a wilderness to come back to the promised land. God gives us similar things even today. It's not feasts that we're commanded to go to a particular place to observe. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, he gives us a, an ordinance, a, a ceremony, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. By celebrating that, we're remembering how God provides for us and takes care of us. And the way he did that was by sending his son to die for us. By his body being broken, his blood being shed, we are restored to God. God takes care of our eternal future. Sometimes though, when we celebrate it, we don't appreciate the significance that can be lost on us. And sometimes it takes moments of great tragedy or suffering to reorient us so we can remember this is why we celebrate that, to remember how God provides for us, to remember the truth that we really cannot take care of ourselves on our own. We really need God's grace for us. the The Israelites remembered this, at least at this time. And so they celebrate this feast the way they were supposed to. Each day they were supposed to offer sacrifice a certain number of animals. The way our text says it is they kept the feast of booths as it is written. They offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. Now I'm going to spare you reading that, but if you want to read it in Numbers 29, it tells you on every single day what they're to offer. And so they're honoring again God's word. They're united in seeking God, obeying him, and depending on him. Even though they're in danger, even though they're afraid, they still trust him. Again, as that Pastor James Hamilton said, the safest place you can be is in obedient worship. The safest place that we can be is obeying God and worshiping, praising him, trusting in him. And this is a powerful moment for the Israelites because they had spent hundreds of years disobeying God, not doing what he said. But it seems that 70 years of exile, maybe, just maybe, has finally taught them to depend on God for safety. When enemies would come before, they would depend on everything and anything else, They would depend on some leader to get them out of the crisis. They would bribe another nation to come and fight for them. But they're finally starting to grasp that safety originates with God. The only place we find true safety is if we know and worship him. In fact, any safety, any provision that we experience in our lives, we can ultimately attribute it to God. Now, he may use another person or a circumstance to provide safety for us, but it really goes back to him. That doesn't mean we ignore the people who are doing it for us or that we look down on them, but it means we give credit to God. God has provided this safety for us. There's so many verses in scripture that talk about this. One, we, uh, we sang in a song today, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or we could look at Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's a powerful realization from the psalmist. Sure, there's other factors involved. There must be peace in his land or something. He's able to sleep like that. But he gives the credit where credit is due to God. Now by me saying this, that that doesn't mean that we'll never experience suffering or pain or, or heartache or trouble. I'm not saying that. We may suffer severe pain, but we are still safe with God because he is with us. And even in the midst of trouble and pain, the worst that can happen to us is we die and we go home to be with him. And so if we feel threatened, worship. Praise is how we can express trust in him. Friends, what are you depending on for safety and comfort? Are you depending on yourself? Are you depending on an idea, a concept, someone else, a political philosophy? Are you depending on your own strength? Is it your own wisdom, your own knowledge, what you can do to get you out of this problem? The truth is that Only God provides true safety. It took the Israelites in exile to learn this, but they learned that God provides their safety and that they could turn their fear into worship and that they could celebrate God's power to protect them and to be with them. And we can celebrate the same thing. The Israelites did this because they knew something else about God. He's not only the source of their safety, but he's also the foundation for their joy. God's their source of safety, but God's also their foundation for joy. This is coming out in verses 7 through 11 as they're rebuilding the foundation of the temple. Let me read that again. Verse 7 says, They gave money to the masons, to the carpenters, food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians, the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And then in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedach, they made a beginning. Together with all the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Then again, down to verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest in their vestments came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. This is what they sang, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. You see their joy that's there. Now they need to start building the temple again. And the way you start building is you have to lay the foundation So what they do is they use the money that they've been given from the government to come back to the land. They give that money to masons and carpenters to get food, drink, and oil that they can use to buy cedar from Lebanon. That's what it means when it talks about the Sidonians, the Tyrians, north of Israel is where Lebanon is. And those two cities were two major powers there. And what they would do is they would send up their food, drink, and oil to them. And they would go up in the mountains in Lebanon. They'd cut down trees, take them down to the sea and then ship them over to the seaport in Joppa. And from there, the people could take it from the sea to Jerusalem. I don't have a map, but if you look on a map, it looks like kind of a roundabout way to get there. But in the ancient world, that was much faster than trying to go in a straight line over mountains and hills and rivers, sending it to the sea and sending it down was the quickest way. This is what the Israelites always had to do when they were on a building project. David had to do this. Solomon had to do this as well when they were building the very first temple and other buildings. And they made a similar deal with the same kind of people. They provided food, drink, oil, and they got cedar in return. What we see here is the Israelites are using the limited resources that God has blessed them with. And they're using that to rebuild God's temple, to honor and worship him. Verse 8 picks up a few months later. They've now already, and I love the way it describes it in verse 8. It says, they made a beginning. They began the work. They started over building the temple. And it's interesting when they're able to do this. They start doing this in the second month, which is interesting because that's the very same month that Solomon started building the very first temple. You can look at that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 says Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed. It was a place called the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And Solomon began to build in the 2nd month of the 4th year of his reign. You'll notice as we go through this section the author of this, this passage or whoever was there is noting how similar this is to when they built the first temple. It's the same kind of thing happening again. Now, on a purely practical level, they probably waited until now to build because they had to wait for that wood to come all the way down. So they had to wait, but it just so happened it arrived in the second month so they could start building then. I haven't read verse 9, not because it's not important or that God doesn't care about the people there, but it's just a list of the Levites who were supervising this rebuilding project. They delegated the work. They delegated responsibility so they could work more efficiently. And the first thing they do is lay the foundation of this new temple, and the people celebrate loudly when this happens. As soon as they've laid the foundation, the priests come. They're in their official vestments, their apparel, their official priest attire and uniform. And then some singers and musicians from a family named the family of Asaph who regularly was used to praise God. That family comes as well. And the people express their emotions of joy freely. In the words of verse 11, they shout with a great shout when they praise the Lord. They do this because the foundation has been laid. We read earlier in verse 13, they shouted so loud that the noise was heard far away. Their celebration impacted the community around them. People said, what is going on there in Jerusalem? They are celebrating something there. They could hear their joy. And they're praising God that the foundation is laid, but they're especially giving praise and thanks for who God is, for his steadfast and faithful love, for his mercy, his favor, and his goodness toward them. And God always shows love and goodness to his people, including us. He is good because he shows us mercy and favor that we do not deserve. For us, what we deserve is sin and rejection from God. We deserve death. But God shows us grace through Jesus Christ. His love for us endures forever. He has been and he will be faithful and that's why if we know him, that's why we praise him. That's why we sing. I'm, I feel like I'm quoting a song. That's why we offer him our everything, you know. Hearing the songs enough at church, it impacts us in that way. We praise him. Like David, when he was preparing for the first temple, we have the same type of praise. This is in First Chronicles 16 says, Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph, And his brothers. And here we have the descendants of Asaph singing and praising him. And look what they sing. They say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Our text is the exact same song. Even though it's hundreds of years later, they sing the same praise. They follow David's directions. They've got the people together, they've got these singers, and they are praising him. The exact same thing happened then when Solomon finished the temple. And when he finished it, he brought an item called the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence. He brought that into the temple. This is 2 Chronicles 5, 11 through 14. It's a longer passage, but you'll see it's the same event. The same celebration is happening. This says, when the priests came to the holy place, it says the priests who are present, they've consecrated themselves. They've made themselves holy. Verse 12 says, All the Levitical singers, there's Asaph and his family, their sons and kinsmen. They were arrayed in fine linen, and they have the same instruments. They have cymbals, harps, lyres. They stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, what did they sing? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they built that first temple, what happened was the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now, in our passage, the temple's not finished. God's glory isn't coming there, but they're still praising God for what he has done and what he will do in the future. And we've heard it multiple times, this, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is a regular theme of praise in God's word. Just one example is Psalm 106, which says, praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's a praise that we are able to echo that we can sing as well because God has shown us the same steadfast love, mercy, and goodness through Jesus Christ. If we know God, if we have a relationship with him, then our life should be full of joy because we have this foundation in Christ, this foundation of our relationship with God. Knowing God through Christ provides us a place that we can express it in joy, should fill us with joy. In the New Testament, we're told that the fruit of the spirit, the result of having God's Holy Spirit in us is love, joy. And then it goes on, peace, patience to other attributes. But see what it says there. If we know God, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, something he gives us is joy. It's not something we have to do, have to produce, have to muster up. I guess I have to be joyful today. It's something that is ours because we have the Holy Spirit in us we have joy in us and it's because of that joy because of what Jesus has done for us that we are able to praise God another new testament passage the book of hebrews says through him through Jesus let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God not a sacrifice of animals like in our passage but a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name we acknowledge and praise him we celebrate him with joy but if that's going to happen we first need to know him know what he has done on our behalf we need to know that Christ came when we were sinners that he died for us so that we could know God we can have that joy and that relationship with him we can be restored to God the only way we can have that is if we turn away from our sin and we believe and trust in Christ. And whether you're here in the sanctuary or watching online, if you do not know him, I pray that you will talk to someone, talk to me about how you can have that joy. If we know him then, our worship should be an overflow of that joy that God has given us. Yes, we praise God because he tells us to praise him, but God wants us to take joy in it God's not interested in dutiful robots that sing a song to him. He wants a joy-filled relationship with us. So let me ask you, that I was challenged about this as I was reflecting on this passage. When was the last time that your joy in knowing God led you to shout his praise? That's what they did. The people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. When was the last time that the joy of what God has done for you led you to shout your praise to him. Confess for me, sometimes it feels like it's been a while since that has happened. But that is the pr- result, of what God can produce in us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that we go charismatic or Pentecostal and, and lose control. I'm not saying that at all. But do we worship God out of our joy? Not of our duty. I'm here on Sunday morning. Guess it's time to sing the songs. But out of our joy, genuinely, grateful for what he has done and expressing our praise fully to him because that is the kind of worship that God desires. And it doesn't matter whether we're having a good day or a bad day, because even when life is hard, we can worship that way because God, he's not only our source of safety and our foundation of joy, he's also our hope in disappointment. God is our hope in disappointment. Listen to verses 12 and 13 again. Verse 12 and 13 says, Many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, who were old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. The sound was heard far away. It seems we have some mixed emotions here on this day when the foundation of the temple is laid. There are some people who cheer, they shout loudly, but there are some some who weep. And there were so many of either that it was hard to distinguish or discern who was weeping and who was shouting. And we read this wonder what are they crying about? Was it tears of joy? They're just so happy that the temple is being started again? We're not told, so perhaps that could be it. But as I was studying the passage, most of the people who look at it, most of the scholars, they don't think it was tears of joy because we're specifically told that it was the old ones who perhaps remembered the splendor, the glory of the old, the former temple that was here in Israel, the first temple of Solomon. And I'm sure it was bittersweet for them to have to start over. They remembered this glorious temple that was there and now all that's here is this small foundation this small group of people it was a humble beginning a very almost sad starting over perhaps they maybe even thought that this new temple could never match the glory of the old one perhaps they were upset there were so few people who had come to worship maybe they were mourning that their people were not completely free like they were with their old temple Yes, they were back in the land, but they were servants of Persia. They were not their own nation anymore. Maybe this event was disappointing because it didn't match their expectations. They had full grand expectations of almost the temple descending from the sky. And instead, they just have this little foundation. And we probably know this is true that nothing can kill our joy as much as unmet expectations. We expect this and it's not quite that. That can kill tear down our joy. We also kind of get this because we can read some other books of the Bible that tell us what's happening at this time. One is a prophecy from a man named Haggai. He's speaking around the same time. You'll see some very similar names. This is what he says in Haggai 2. He says, who is left among you who saw this house, this temple in its former glory? Well, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's not nearly as good as that one was. But Haggai says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, the governor. Be strong, O Joshua, the priest, son of Jehoshadak. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, rebuild the temple, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Yes, the temple looked small. Yes, they were upset and disappointed. But God promised his presence and his strength. And he said there's good news to come. A little bit later in Haggai, verse 9 says this, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Even though the temple looks small, they thought it wasn't the same. God says, There's going to be even more glory that happens here. We can talk about what that is, but I I think that the glory he's referring to is that God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, would visit this temple and would do his work in this temple. But in this moment, this is a couple hundred years before that, and these Israelites can't see that. The only thing they can see is their disappointment, their unmet expectations. They may also be forgetting that it was their ancestors' sin that led to their exile in the first place. And so the sin is robbing them of joy as well. We're remembering that their sin caused the destruction of the temple. Regardless, we can't criticize them too much because there's nothing wrong with feeling disappointment. We can be disappointed that things aren't exactly what we thought they would be, but we have to be careful that that disappointment doesn't trap us, that it doesn't keep us from God's purpose. Maybe it would help if I explained this a little more. I'll I'll speak for myself personally. I don't know if you know this about me, but I really love history. I love history. I love learning about things that happened in the past and going into great detail about them. My family knows this is true about me, uh, not only because I studied history, social studies. That was my major before I switched to Bible in college, but they know it because they know I'm not allowed to plan family vacations, because if I do, we'll end up at a battlefield. Uh, you can even ask my wife on our honeymoon, I snuck in a trip to a battlefield. So the, I, I really enjoy history and learning about the past. You may know this as well. If you've heard me preach, you know, I love quoting Charles Spurgeon. Well, he died over 125 years ago. So I, I like history. I like learning from the past and church history and the history around me. I, it even slips into every week. Just this week, I spent time this week learning about a landslide that happened in Wales in the 60s. I've spent some time learning about the different homes that presidents lived in. This is something I enjoy. I like history, learning from the past. For me, it's because I love the stories of the individuals and the continual relevance of what happened then to where we are today. There is so much to learn and celebrate in the past. But... The past can also trap us, and it can disappoint us. What I'm speaking here is kind of the danger of nostalgia. Danger of nostalgia. And what nostalgia means is it's a longing for the past more than the present. I looked it up uh, this morning, a dictionary definition. It's a wistful affection for the past. It's thinking what was old is much better than the way things are now. It's believing the old days. The old days were perfect and good, so much better. And there's nothing wrong with feeling that, feeling that emotion, longing for the way something used to be. Nothing wrong with that at all. Hear me, nothing wrong. But if we feed into that in our mind, it can, it can dull our hope for seeing God's work in the present and in the future. It's okay. To miss things from the past. It's okay to mourn people that we've lost, to mourn tragedies and challenges that we're facing, but it's dangerous to get stuck there. If we dwell on the past, if we dwell on our unmet expectations, it can keep us from doing what God has called us to do now. It can take away our motivation for sharing about God's kingdom The reason I'm talking about this after we talked about a foundation for joy is because that type of of overlonging for the things that were can take away our joy in the present because we compare now to then. Again, the past is wonderful to remember, to study. I love studying it, love learning about it, love thinking about it. I'm not saying we forget the past. I'm not saying we kill the past. But God is building his kingdom now. He's working today. Now, I realize that I might not appear as an authority to speak on this. And there may be some of you thinking in your minds, "Okay, Pastor John, but you're young. Once you're older, you'll think the same way. You'll think how much better things were back then." And and maybe you're right. Maybe you are. But I really hope not. In fact, I took some time this week. I asked my wife to to challenge me and I took some time to pray that 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 I wouldn't think that way because I struggle with that temptation now. I miss the way that certain things used to be when I was younger. I really think about it. I really miss how we did church a year ago. I miss that a lot. But just because I miss that and long for that does not mean that I'm unable or it shouldn't mean that I'm unable to look towards what God is doing now and what he will do in the future because his kingdom work continues. It has not and it will not stop. Whether we're aware of it or not, people are hearing about him. And you know how I know that? I know that because I open our church bulletin and I look at the list of people who've shared. And, and uh, my father and I, Tom and I, have been very impressed. It's so long the past couple of weeks. So many people are sharing about God with their friends, relatives, acquaintances, and neighbors. People are hearing about God. So many of us are praying for one person, whos Your one, that we're going to share with this year. It's encouraging to see so many who are thinking about that and praying that way. There's people who are coming to know Him through the ministry of our church, but through others as well. Here, in particular, I see how people are growing in their relationship with God, and I can see the change that God has made in people's hearts and minds over time. God is working. And that's the danger. If we glorify the past and have a negative outlook on the present, then we can discourage that. We can say, well, you can serve God, but it will never quite be what it was back then. And a ministry can be derailed by fighting over preferences. Instead, our focus should be on the worship of God, the love of others. We share his truth, not our ideas. Let me give you a silly example of this and a bit more serious one. So on a, a silly side of this, I am not a huge fan of movies or shows that are remakes or sequels or prequels or things like that. I'm, I'm just really not. I like the original thing, whatever was first. I like that. I think that's best. Unless you have a couple hours, don't get me started on everything wrong with Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last <laughs> Jedi, because I will talk your ear off about my problems with that movie. But just because I like what was old and what was original, that doesn't mean there's nothing new or good in things that come out now. And so in a more serious way, yes, church doesn't look the same like it used to. Ministry doesn't look the same like it used to. We, there's less people. A lot of people are online. We do things differently. And maybe you think some of these adjustments and things we've done are ridiculous. Maybe you think we're not doing enough. There needs to be more changes that we're able to make now. But wherever we are, we can unite around our common salvation. We can work together to build Christ's church here in this community. Not your church, not my church, but Christ's church here in this neighborhood. Like the Israelites in this passage, we can start over. We can make a beginning. We can lay the foundation, work together for God's glory. And once we do that, then we can praise him like them by making a great shout. So, friends, what are the disappointments in your life? What is it you look at that leads you into nostalgia or hopelessness? Is it uh, perhaps changes that have come because of coronavirus? Is it world or national events? Is it broken relationships you have with someone? Does that pull you down? Friends, God offers us a hope and a way forward. Because if you can hear me today... On this day, January 24th, if you're alive now and you are a Christian, then God has a purpose for your life. And the reason I know this is because I can go to another Old Testament passage about this. This is one that we read last week that where God predicted that they would be in exile for 70 years. Look what it says. The Lord says, when 70 years are completed, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. I will bring you back to this place. Why does God say this? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is telling them the best days for God's people are still to come. He doesn't say this because there won't be any suffering in front of them, but he says any suffering they experience will be for a purpose. My brothers and sisters, what is God doing In your life. If you're here, if you're listening, God is doing something, some great purpose that He has. We should ask ourselves what that is and how we can serve Him in it and know Him more. My prayer for all of us is the same that Paul prayed for the Romans. He says in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I love that phrase, abound in hope. There's a lot around us that makes it easy to get discouraged. I I know that. I, I feel that. But God has promised us that we can abound in hope through his Holy Spirit. So if you're here, you do not know Jesus, then the only way you have that hope is by knowing him, coming to know him. And again, I would beg you, please, Learn how you can know him. But if you do know Christ, then I hope you abound in the hope that he is your source of safety. He is your foundation for joy. And whatever disappointments you have, he can give you a hope that will not disappoint in them. And once you realize that, I hope you will shout your praise to him like God's people did because he alone is worthy of that kind of praise.